to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, Nonprofit Lowdown listeners, Rhea with you once again. I am here with my dear friend, Jane Martinez-Dowling, and we are going to talk about all of the things, but particularly about being an ED. So Jane has been an ED of many organizations for a really long time, and we are going to get some expert advice from a pro. So welcome, Jane. Rhea, thank you so much for having me. We have been trying to catch up for a long time, so I'm glad we we get to spend some time together this morning. I am as well. So Jane, tell me a little bit about your illustrious career as an ED and the fact that you've had multiple tours of duty is really impressive. Wow. Well, when you put it that way, seriously, I have been in the nonprofit sector here in New York City since 1990. I was in the original Teach for America Corps and taught in New York City. And pretty much right after that, dove into leadership, first running Teach for America here in New York City as their regional director. And then I ventured over to school choice and inner city Catholic education, which is really dear to my heart since I am a product of New York York City Catholic schools. And so I've done a number of different things in educational philanthropy, starting with running a program back in the mid-90s called Student Sponsor Partnership, which is called Student Sponsor Partners Now, and really had a terrific time doing that and really doing direct service with students, preparing them to basically go to college. After that, I went back to graduate school at Columbia, and soon after that, became the president of high school, Catholic girls high school up in the Bronx called Mount St. Ursula, which was a turnaround situation. And I was there for a brief time, but happy to report that the school is still open, which even though it was a difficult, you know, it was a difficult situation to come in and turn around a school that had been the oldest Catholic girls high school in New York State, but really proud of the work that I did there. And then directly after that, went to KIPP and was the executive director of KIPP through college here in New York City, which is by far the proudest, I think, just professionally. And really, it was a labor of heart and mind and very, very proud of the work that I did there along with the KIPP team here in New York City, which I think actually influenced a lot of the work that went on nationally around college persistence and completion. And so a year ago, I left KIPP to come to expand ed schools, which had previously existed as TASC since 1998. It is an intermediary here in New York City, which is really well known for its research policy and practice in the after-school and expanded learning space. I just about finished my first year here, and I'm excited for what the future holds. A lot of my listeners are either new executive directors or aspiring executive directors. And I'm just wondering in your career, since you've been in the, in the driver's seat for so many tours, what are the things that you would recommend that people do as far as due diligence? Because I, I've heard so many horror stories of people you know, taking the top job and then realizing, oh, there's a whole bunch of skeletons in the closet that nobody ever told me. I think that there are some things that are unique to every situation you walk into. And then there are just some, you know, lead, adaptive leadership things that you should always be thinking about. I think for me, one of the things I've learned over time is that 
one, you have to really take some time to listen and understand what the situation is for each organization. Every time that I have been brought in, even if it's a situ- it's an organization that's doing really well and very healthy, there's usually an opportunity for growth. There's usually an opportunity for change. And in order to get that right, you do have to really listen to all the stakeholders. And so doing a listening tour, I think, is really essential. That's one. And then the other piece is really figuring out the people, right, and understanding whether who's on the bus, whether they're the right people on the bus, and if you have to make changes, figuring out how you do that, what do you do right away, what do you wait on, and then what do you sort of plan to do long term. So I'd say those two things, listening and people, are the sort of top two things that I tend to do in every situation that I walk into. And could you speak about sort of before you take the job, like are there any practices or indications that you've learned about that might that might be helpful for people to not step into situations that they end up, I don't want to say regretting, but maybe are less than optimal? So again, it's always a risk when you're going to a new place. I think the optimal situation is if it's an organization that you have somehow been a part of. I think when I made my transition to KIPP back in 2008, I had been involved in the organization as a volunteer, as a board member. I had mentored one of the students who had actually completed college. So I had a really good understanding of what the core values of the organization were. And if there's an opportunity to really get to know folks or to really know what the problems that need to be diagnosed are, you need to talk to not just the search committee, but find other board members, find common people who you know. I think it gets easier when you've spent a lot of time in the nonprofit sector like I have. But that those are the things I would say, like just talk to as many people as possible, funders, investors, board members, people who work there, friends of people who work there, just to really understand what the inside scoop is. I think one thing that I always try to do, and it's actually served me well, and and you're not always going to have the opportunity to do it, but if you have an opportunity to meet the people on the staff that you are going to manage, I think that makes a really big difference. I know that when I have taken certain positions, it's something that you may have to negotiate with the recruiter or with you know the team who is looking to hire you. But the more time you can spend in the organization, the more you're going to get a sense of like what the culture is and who the people are and whether or not it's going to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. So is there any other advice that you would offer to new executive directors above and beyond you know, listening and, and doing a stakeholder analysis and a listening tour? Because I, I think so often, especially new executive directors are just they're sort of flailing around just to keep their head above water. And I'm wondering if you could speak to anything that you feel like you might be able to offer up as far as like, did you have mentors? Did you have resources? Were there certain places that you went to learn about knowledge gaps that you had when you first stepped in? Yeah, you know, I would say that you build upon every every experience that you've had. And so this is probably to your point earlier, my the third rodeo where I've taken over an organization that's, you know, substantial, like over five million dollars and has, you know, more than 20 people who are going to be managed and really thinking about how are you going to work with your board chair is really critical. And so having really strong conversations, 
having a really strong understanding of the fiduciary piece of the work is really critical too. not just reading the 990s, but really digging in and saying, okay, so for, for the last five years, what's been the financial health of this organization and what are they looking for me to do? And then just putting some stakes in the ground and saying, for the first year, I'd like to do this. For the second and third year, I'd like to do this. And even if it's big and broad and you don't have the strategy plan in place yet, you're going to set expectations, right, with the people who manage you. And then you sort of turn around and do the same thing with the people with whom you're managing. And so making sure that once you're in there, having a staff meeting with your entire group and really letting them know who you are. I'm a big proponent of being your authentic self. My particular profile is a you know, first-generation college grad. You know, My parents are Dominican. I have been in the education space for almost three decades. That's a very different profile than the person who previously led the organization here. And frankly, the other organizations with, that I've led, same kind of thing, right? Like I'm a very different leader than the person who preceded me. Mm-hmm. And so just really being bold and brave and saying, this is who I am, you know, being super thoughtful about what you want to do, but also making yourself a little bit vulnerable and saying, this is my truth. This is why I'm here. I mean, for me, this work is a little bit of a vocation and having people understand that about you is pretty critical. So just kind of putting yourself out there and saying, this is who I am. This is how I think I lead. And then opening your door. And really, again, like I said before, listening, I had a 30-minute one-on-one meeting with every single person on the staff at Expanded, and it took me three months to do it. But I think it was super critical to understand, like, what are people's expectations of bringing on a new person? Nowadays, we're hearing a lot around, you know, Brene Brown's work with respect to vulnerability and being your authentic self. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is that people are looking to their leaders for certainty. And so what do you think is that balance between like, gosh, I really don't know what to do, but how much of that do I actually show my staff? Because I also don't want them to doubt their, their leader. That's a really great question. I think you start with what you know. I think you start with what you're confident about. I think in my case, and I think with a lot of other leaders of color, you actually are pretty sure why you're there. You're actually pretty mission aligned about the change that you want to make. And just starting there, I think, I think puts out there a level of confidence about your abilities, your insight, your focus. And then there are the sort of technical pieces of the work that you have to understand. And that's going to take time, right? And that's where you look at your team, both your board and your staff as your partners in the work. But I would say that to pretend to get up there and say that you know everything is a little insincere and people can probably see right through that, but there are always going to be things that you know and that you're really self-confident about and putting that out there and then sort of figuring out the process piece, which for me is always the thing that, you know, there's there you have to make decisions about and be thoughtful about is where you start. And so just to give you an example here at Expand Ed, one thing that the staff universally has talked about is figuring out you know, how are we a diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization? And those are conversations that even though they had started before here, it's something I've invested pretty deeply in. And it's not, you know, it's not easy. Like DEI work is really hard, but I felt pretty strongly that 
if I, as the president and CEO, who's a Dominican-American woman, couldn't get that conversation started and going, no one was going to be able to do it. And so there's vulnerability in that because you don't know, you know how people are going to respond, but you have to be super confident in saying that it is an imperative for the organization before we do anything else. Let's pivot a little bit because I think you brought up an interesting point around leaders of color. And mm-hmm. for those of you who've listened for a while, you know, we've had some extraordinary leaders of color on like Diane Morales and Erica Hamilton. I just finished up an interview with Dr. Lisette Nieves. And so I'm just curious, Jane, how, how do you think as a leader of color and particularly as a woman of color, it's affected your leadership both in good and challenging ways. And I'm specifically thinking about one thing that Diane Morales said around feeling like she's under a microscope because as a woman of color leading a major agency, she just feels like everyone is magnifying everything that she does. So first of all, just to go back to all those amazing women that you named, you had talked a little earlier about mentors. All of those women are in my community. They are all colleagues and friends and supporters. And there is something that is incredibly powerful about bringing people who are in those positions together, particularly when they have a unique profile of being all women or being all women of color. Lisette Nieves herself did this wonderful thing when I first started my work a year ago and had this sort of open house welcome party for myself and Nancy Gutierrez, who runs the New York City Leadership Academy. And those are opportunities to create community that are so powerful, right? And sort of really ground you in, I can do this. And there's a whole world that's sort of like lifting me up. So I just wanted to pause and say, one, that they are terrific. And two, the opportunities that you are giving all of us to amplify our work and our voice is incredibly generous and very much appreciated. Um, You're welcome. But I I think there's this sort of intersection that you have to take. You were referring a little to what Diane had said, which is absolutely accurate. You know, you you have to really think about your position and there are positives and there are challenges to the, to those things. I, I have to say for most of my career, I've sort of seen myself at the intersection of being able to relate to many different stakeholders. And so I sort of always look at it as I'm the person who can talk to the board about what the students who I'm serving are, are facing and I can do it in a voice that's really heard, right? In a way that perhaps my colleague who's not a first-gen college graduate or is not a person of color cannot. I also, and I think this is what I have over the past couple of years really become sort of confident about is bringing the sort of voice that you have around the board table back to your staff and saying, look, I can sit around that table and advocate for you advocate for our work, advocate for the students and people whom we're serving is a pretty powerful position to be in. And, you know, I've sort of been in that position my entire life because of where I grew up and because of, you know, my, I have a very multiracial and multicultural family. And, and yes, is that difficult to do because you have to wear many hats? And, you know, we used to talk a lot about code switching when I was a kid. Absolutely. But at some point when you say, you know what, this is who I am and I'm all of those things and I have the power to be able 
to really leverage conversations and leverage people and change hearts and minds, you're in a pretty powerful position. And when you walk the halls of power, you are always going to be under a microscope. And so you do have to be really thoughtful about who you're representing in every room that you walk into. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because one of the challenges I always had was how to hold the tension in a really responsible way between my staff who were largely folks of color and tended to be on the younger side. So I had a lot of millennial staff who had very strong feelings about things like DEI, which they should, but I think I was sort of caught in the middle between that plus, you know, the kids that we were serving and my predominantly white board and predominantly white funders and trying to help bridge that gap between the two constituencies that didn't always see eye to eye. And I'm wondering if that's a particular challenge that you had. You know, it, it, I think it actually gets easier with age. So I will say that I am definitely a generation Xer and I definitely feel the difference between not one, but two generations, because I think the folks that are now coming out of college or into the workforce are actually Gen Z, which is what my children will be. But I, I think that for me, one of the things I'm looking at is that I am now a generation or two removed from the work that's happening and being very open to understanding, you know, where those voices come from is, it's hard, but I also think that it's really critical, right? Just because if I sort of only see myself as a person of color who relates to, you know, all the people of color in my organization, you know, there's another part to my personality and to my profile that actually doesn't relate to them. And I have to step back and really understand what I can do, but also to leave spaces there so that others who have a voice and others who actually know more than I do, like, you know, I'm sure my folks can put together a a Zoom call or an OWL or, you know, a CenturyLink or whatever all all the technology tools are in a way that's much, much more efficient and faster than I can. And that's just a technical thing, but I think that exists in the space overall. So I guess I feel much more comfortable doing moving among different stakeholders the older that I've gotten. It was not easy when I first started, you know, leading organizations at 25 and 30 and 35. I think my experience at KIPP was particularly helpful because it was such a diverse group of people. And and when there were opportunities to be able to speak to a board or speak to a funder, you know, KIPP did it in such a genuine way. And even when we talked about our data around college completion, we were very humble. There's a lot of humility around it. Mm-hmm. And what I learned was that if you actually say, I don't know everything, but here's what I have to add, people tend to listen more. And then I think the other piece that we just have to really push on is just to have, we have to have more diversity in the funding world. We have to have more diversity around the board table and in the boardroom. I am very fortunate right now that at Expand Ed, both our previous board co-chair and now the incoming board chair are both Black men. They're both men of color. We, we have actually a pretty diverse board. And you know I've been fortunate to go to a couple of funding convenings in the last year where it, you know, it's, 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 the world is getting browner and blacker and in all of the different parts of our work. And we are only you know, we're only going to be the better for it. 
Yeah, I mean, that's wonderful to hear because I, I mean, I, when I was at Breakthrough, I loved my board, absolutely, but it wasn't quite as diverse as I wanted it to be. I mean, mm-hmm. anything ever as diverse as I want it to be, but right, right. I did find myself often having to explain things a lot to people whose life experiences were really different than the kids that we served. And at a certain point, I mean, there is some exhaustion that comes with it. Like, why do we have to explain for the millionth time why we need to provide like Metro cards because our kids can't afford them? And I also felt like, you know, the few folks of color that we did have on the board also helped carry the mantle around like, this is why we have to do it. And let's talk about the work from a really authentic place. But at some point it's like, (laughs) when does my responsibility as a, as the executive and, and where do board members' responsibility to educate themselves start? It's, you know, it's a great question. It sounds as if, you know, the, the experiences you were having were a few years ago. And I think a lot of us were in that place. Uh, you know, I think the world has changed a lot in the last, frankly, five years. And even this year, as I've pivoted to this role, it is just in the water, right, that this is really critical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing that's happening is that for the folks who sit around our board table, they are experiencing these same conversations in their corporate spaces, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not just in the nonprofit sector, in the nonprofit space. Diversity, equity, inclusion, institutional racism, all of those are things that are very much in the mainstream now. But you're right, there are going to be times where based on someone's economic background or gender or you know, racial or ethnic background, they're gonna have a different lens than you do, right? And I think two things that you said I would, I would just refer back to. One is be thoughtful about always just being the singular I and pivot to being the collective we. Right. So when you're having those moments, like you just said, the exhaustion of having to explain to your board, like think about your community. Like where is your community? Where are the, you know, Erica's and Diane's and Lisette's and, and where are those sort of communities where you have that support for each other? Because, you know, there's a ton around network improvement science and and lots in our work that people are exploring for educators. But, you know, there are communities that we have to push ourselves to be a part of in order not to get the exhaustion that you're talking about. So that's one, just like thinking about like, where do I go to replenish myself? Where do I go to make sure that I have a community? Because you're not the only one, right? You're not the only leader of color that's leading an organization. So that that's one piece. And then the other thing is pick your battles, right? I was actually in a meeting recently where something came up about the school diversity issue in one of the districts. And, you know, one of the board members sitting around the table did ask, you know, had a, how do I say this? He had sort of an opinion that was from his perspective as a white affluent parent who really wanted to have his child in the public schools where he lives, but, you know, the way in which things are being structured didn't work for him, right? And so there was a moment where, you know, those of us, multiracial, but those of us who are in the work kind of looked at each other and said, uh, do we take this on now or later? But I think what you do is you you sort of keep moving with your work. And then when you have a moment where there's a one-on-one opportunity to really talk where you can both listen to each other, you take that opportunity as opposed to, outing somebody and making them feel really uncomfortable 
you know, around a group of other people. And, you know, that's exactly what I did. Jane, I'm going to switch tacks a little bit here and talk about, I mean, it seems like a bit of an oxymoron, but to be the president, CEO, executive director, and to have the so-called work-life balance, which I, <laughs> which I like to call it, you know, the the promised land. But, you know, for yourself, you've had these very demanding, high-powered positions in leadership, and you've also and you're also a mom. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about how you've been able to, I don't even say balance because I think that that's a fallacy, let's call it integration, and how you've been able to carve out time to both be the leader that you want to be in and to be present for your family in the way that you want to be. I would say that along with race and ethnicity and gender, it is the biggest challenge that I've had in my work. You know, I was, it's interesting, I was with a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who I went to high school with, who lives outside of New York. And we were out, she was in the city, and we were out for a drink one night. And we have sons who are around the same age. And she, you know, had been working part time and took, basically has an opportunity to sort of pivot in her career. And she said, you know, I think I'm going to stay home and wait until my son is off to college so I can be there for him. And I got that pit in my stomach, which was, oh my God, have I done something wrong? Right. And just thinking about that conversation made me really step back and reflect and say, am I doing too much? Am I giving them enough? Which is like the constant narrative that's going on in your head. But then I really kind of sat down and thought to myself, I have a 12, almost 13-year-old son. He turns 13 this month. And I have a 16-year-old son. And both of them, you know, I think have really benefited from seeing their mother as a leader as a person who has agency, as a person who is empowered to make change, and as somebody who serves, right, who serves outside of her family and her community. You know, I have all sorts of stories about when my kids were really little, and I had tons of agita around this. I was one of the first leaders at KIPP who had kids and people all in New York, and people were always like, oh my God, how do you have like, I was one, my kids were one and four and a half when I started working there. And really just understanding that one, it's a long game, right? And two, that you actually do bring your work home with you, right? So whenever I have the opportunity, I do sit around the table with my children and talk to them about, you know, the great things that are going on at work and the barriers. And and so you know, both of my boys have said um, in, you know, different circumstances, you know, they tease me a lot whenever I'm kind of getting on my high horse at home. They're like, oh, mom, the CEO. And they're making, they're literally making fun of me. But there are many other they times are. they are completely like, you are not the CEO of this home. But I, <laughs> but I am. But, you know, I know. Yeah, um, you but I, I, it, I've had lots of opportunities to see my boys say to me how proud they are that about the work that I do the influence that I have, but also that I've made them better people and that they learn from me in a very different way. And that's been very heartening, right? Because there have been times where, you know, I, I have tried to make all the events that I can possibly make. I have memories with different people and organizations where literally I finished a meeting, somebody put me in a cab and I went to a school event and then came back. Mm. It's not easy, but I do think that 
you know, the benefits that your children get from it. And I'm going to say, you know, in my case, I have two boys and I feel very proud of the fact that I think they have a very different interpretation of what a woman is seeing, seeing their mom and the work that they've done. I am very fortunate to have an incredible husband who is an incredible father, who is, have, has been my partner in this work long before we were even married. And that really helps right? Like having a family where there is true balance between both of our careers and both of our home life and, you know, and having two kids and we're like a unit has been really very helpful and satisfying. Now, they're both teenagers. Come back to me and talk to me in 10 years and see how everything ended up. I understand I'm in the middle of the journey, but overall, I I wouldn't change the decisions that I've made. Personally, don't have children. I have a, I have a, a little fur baby. We got a dog last year. That was like our next. <laughs> and, uh, and again, it's like having another, it is like having another it baby. It is having it another. Is, it's having another baby. So it was like more sleepless nights and more like, you know, learning to train them and all of that. But again, as you know, you open your heart even further when you have yeah. your little furry friend come. Yeah. Little Stevie Wonder is my little buddy. But, you know, I think I have a lot of female friends and family members who are really going through the the tough balancing act. Most of my friends have littler kids, you know, so the yeah. two, three, four, five year olds. And I think that there's just so much energy that women spend on feeling guilty. Like feeling guilty yeah. that you're not there, feeling guilty yeah. you're not here, feeling guilty that you're not, you know, fully at work, feeling guilty that you're not fully at home. And I guess I would just say that again you know, grain of salt, I don't have children, but it just seems to me that if we gave ourselves permission to just do what we were doing and stop feeling so guilty about all the things that we weren't doing, we might be happier. I agree with you a hundred percent. I have also been fortunate enough to have really good role models in that space. Both my mom, you know, who chose to stay home for a while when I was really little, probably at the expense of us having even more sort of economic stability, mm-hmm. but education was really important to her. And then, you know, she went back to work while my, you know, there's five of us and I'm the oldest of five, but she and my dad worked, you know, throughout our entire life after, you know, we got to grade school. My mother-in-law, who is, you know, this incredible Irish Catholic woman who grew up in New York City and also grew up at a time where women weren't afforded a ton of opportunities. I was able to do both, right? At some point during her life, she became an entrepreneur and she opened up a childcare agency. And all of those women who are baby boomers and who are a generation ahead of me from multi-ethnic backgrounds and multiracial backgrounds, there's a common thread, right? Which is, yes, you feel guilty about everything, right? But what they've been able to show me, and I think our generation, is that you actually can have it all. I think, to your point, right, is not to judge other people for the choices that they have made. And then the other thing is, you may not be able to have everything at the same time. That's right. So some people pull back, some other people push in. I mean, I probably took a little time off after my first child and then went right back to graduate school because I was like, okay, I don't think I can stay home without being stimulated. And I have sisters and sisters-in-law who have changed careers, who are, you know, who sort of stayed home. Other people never stopped. I I do think there is a little bit of a special, I, I will say this, 
as a woman of color, I remember back in 2002 when my first son was born, I did take some time off and I told my husband, I'm going to retire. I'm going to just, you know, raise my child. And we lived on the Upper West Side back then. And I would go to the playground, Rhea, and biracial child. And it was that story. People thought I was the nanny. And then when I meet other professional women who were not women of color, literally there was always this, why are you stopping your career, right? And so there is, and even my parents who are super traditional Dominican Catholic, like, you know, motherhood and marriage is everything. Even Mm -hmm. they were like, you've worked really hard for your career and make sure that you don't lose it. And so I do think that there are questions that women of color who work really hard for their careers have to ask themselves about how do they balance this work that may be a little different than our white sisters who may have more opportunity. And, you know, there are tons of other things. Like I have no idea. There are some pretty incredible women who are single moms who do this and they are great mothers and they are great leaders. And I just have no idea how they do it without (laughs) having a partner at home every day. And then there are other folks who have many children and I don't know how they do that either. I, you know, I have often asked other friends and colleagues like Wendy Kopp is somebody who comes to my mind who has four children, right? And she's had an incredible career and amazing kids. And, you know, you sit there and you ask yourself, how do we get it all done? But circling back to your point, not judging is really important and really understanding your own truth, Mm -hmm. but also taking the time to learn from others around you to figure out like what's possible is important. I think that really resonates with me. And as you were talking, the other thing that really occurred to me was the legacy of generational wealth. So for me, I mean, obviously I love my career. I feel very proud of what I've accomplished, but you know, for me, the idea of ever not working is very much tied to kind of my family DNA around like scarcity. And like, what yeah. do you mean you're not working? Like, what do you mean? Like, you're not getting a regular paycheck. And so, you know. Yeah, like, that's exactly what mommy said. Yeah. That's exactly what my mom said. She was like, what? What do you mean you're not working? I mean, but this is also a woman who who is, you know, in the nursing profession, she retired. And two years later, she was like, okay, I can't stay home. I have to go back to work. Yeah. So yeah. it is in your DNA sometimes, especially when you come from families who really struggled, you know, to attain what they have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's interesting. Like my grandparents are immigrants to this country, but my parents both grew up in very modest circumstances and they worked and they, you know, they're firmly in the middle class. They sent their kids to college. And so this idea of like not working is just anathema. Like, what do you, what do you mean you're not, you're not working? And so even when I started job as a consultant, my parents were like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, are you, do you have money? Like, are you going to yeah. go? Home? And uh, literally I was home a couple of months ago. My mom like slides a check over to me. I'm like, mom, it's cool. Like I, I have a job like I, you know, but it, it's so tied to, I think, I don't know if it's an immigrant mentality or a person of color or or someone who's struggled coming up, but like there is that real fear around like, if I don't have a job, what am I going to do? I'm like two steps away from being in a box by the river. So absolutely hear that. And I think in my family, one thing I've seen again, immigrant family is, you know, I, I, I'm the oldest of five and there's 20 years between, you know, myself and my youngest sibling, you know, 
big Catholic family. And I see my parents every time my younger siblings, you know, change jobs because it is much more common in their generation to just you do something. If it's fulfilling, you keep doing it. And if it's not, then you step and you move on. And my parents get so much agita over that. It's like, but this is a good job and you have a good paycheck. And even, you know, when I sort of, when I left KIPP and came to expand ed, my mom sort of sat me down and was like, are you sure this is something you want to do? It's a very secure job. You have lots of like opportunities. And so I do think all of those things that you're talking about around wealth, around poverty, around immigrant status, and just generation, right? Like, you know, nobody gets the watch for being at a place for 25 years anymore, which, you know, my husband's grandfather got, and, you know, my dad worked at the place for 25 years before he retired. It's just not the same world that we live in, but I think it's just harder for them to understand. Jane, last question for you. So, I mean, you do so much. You're a mom, you're a high-powered CEO, you, you know, you're- <laughs> Now your- you sound like my kids. No, I'm not, so, no, I, well, I'm not, I'm not making fun of you. That's a difference. Uh, true, 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 true. But so my question though is, how do you fill your cup? Because I mean, as the ever wisely said Nieves said, like you can't pour from an empty cup. And I do think that, you know, I don't know if it's a woman thing. I don't know if it's a woman of color thing, but I think we tend to give, 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 give. And, and we feel guilty or we, we put ourselves last. And, and I think it's hard to take care of others if you're not taking care of yourself. So how do you yep. fill your cup? First is therapy is really important. And I think that you know, for many of us who grew up in particularly immigrant families, I mean, that's another thing that my parents are constantly like, therapy, what is this therapy? What are you talking about? But it is literally, you know, you have to have sort of a physical space to make sure that you're keeping your physical life healthy. There's the place that you need to keep your emotional life healthy and a place that's just for you, right? And so whether, for me, that has been, I've had, you know, somebody that I've worked with for about seven years who is Latina, she's Dominican, and it has been, you know, all of these things that you asked me about before, I've, I have really been reflective and come to terms around because I've had someone who's helped me facilitate those conversations and, and evolve sort of like my true self. So I think having someone that you have, whether it's a coach or a therapist, a lot of us in the space are talking about, do you have both? Like, how do you have time to have both? But that's really important. The other thing I would say is no matter how many things you have to do, you do have to have time for yourself and find out, like like you were saying with Lucette, what fills your cup. For me, there's some pretty simple things, right? Like reading reading fiction and something and not something that is doing all the work that we're doing in the space is pretty important. I used to think that spending time with your family filled your cup and it does, but you actually have to do something else in addition to that. And then depending on who you are, if if your sort of physical self is important to you or getting your nails done is important to you or have going to the hairdresser every week, like all of those things are, if they make you happy and they make you feel a certain way or having a dog that you can take a walk with for like an hour, you have to take the time to actually define what makes you you and makes you happy and, and then build in the space to be able to do that for yourself. And it is not easy, but you have to think about this, right? 
if you run an organization and I run an organization and we manage people day in and day out and projects and have accomplishments and outcomes, making some self goals shouldn't actually be that difficult to execute. Or as we like to say in my house, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. This is true. This is true. If the CEO is not happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> we should check with my staff, but that's, that's probably what they're saying. Well, Jane, thank you so much for your time. This was such a fun conversation. Let's do it again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Ria. Looking forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.